0: Podglomerate original. Most stand-up comedians spend years working at open mics and in comedy clubs developing their routine, hoping that one day they may be able to record a comedy album or a stand-up special. But this is not that kind of story. There's a comedian out of Chicago who's never worked in a nightclub, just kind
1: of done little radio sketches named Bob Newhart, used to be an accountant.
0: And at the time... Warner Brothers wants to get into the comedy album business. So they like, let's do this Bob Newhart guy. We're not gonna they're not going
1: to mainstream, they're like, let's see what th- these young comedians so they get Bob Ladies Newhart gentlemen, Bob Newhart to go down to Texas and record these sketches, which are all kind of on the telephone talking to someone, so you only hear one half of the conversation. This is
2: a telephone conversation between Abe and his press agent just before Gettysburg. Uh, Hi Abe, sweetheart, how are you, (laughs) Uh, How's how's Gettysburg? Sort of a drag, huh? (laughs) Well, Abe, you know them small Pennsylvania towns. (laughs) You seen one, you seen them all. All right. Uh, Listen, Abe, I got to know it. What's the problem? You're you're thinking of shaving it off. (laughs) Uh, Abe, uh, don't you see that's part of the image? Right, With the the shawl and the stovepipe has the string tie. You you don't have the shawl. Uh, Where's the shawl, Abe?
1: I can't tell you how popular that album is. I'm going to show it to you right now. It's called The Button-Down
0: Mind of Bob Newhart. Came out in 1960. Yeah. We'll take a look at that. He's so young on the cover. What does it say? The most celebrated new comedian since new Attila com- so it was the they Hun, were, in French. Right, but they were into
1: new comedian. This is sort of the what I'm trying to say, tell you. Is and like-
0: just as an aside for listeners who may be unfamiliar with who Bob Newhart is, I mean, for me and people younger than me, he might be best known for um, being... Uh, Will Ferrell's elf guardian father (laughs) in the movie Elf. Right. Um, But this was way before that movie came out. And he had two very successful television shows. And the third one actually in the 60s.
1: But um, when it comes, it sells so, it's so popular, they can't keep, they can't print them fast enough to keep up with this. It's faster than, and it's top of the charts, more than any music act, anything. Bob Newhart. So they wrote a, uh, a sequel to it called The Button Down Mind Strikes Back, I believe is the name of it. So The Button Down Mind of Bob Newhart does not win the best comedy recording of for that year. So it would be 61. It wins album of the year, like beats all the music acts. Guess what wins best comedy album? The Button Down Mind Strikes Back. His sequel wins best comedy album as he's winning best, best album of the year. So he
0: wins both. Yeah. With two different albums. Yeah.
1: That's insane. That's why I'm talking about it. That's why we're talking about it. Yeah. So that was... That was incredible. And then... Wait. Yeah. You said he wasn't a nightclub performer. Not a nightclub performer. This is... According to Bob Newhart, the first time he ever performed in a nightclub when he went to this The Tideland's Club in Houston, Texas, that was set up by... this is a recording
0: of his first nightclub performance.
1: Well, I think he did like a week of shows or weekend of shows. So the first one, apparently, he was too nervous and his voice was... Had he performed in front of an audience before? Apparently... I don't know if it was... I think in little, like... Little things here and there. But not like, oh, we... But not like uh, an official billing or Right, 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 right. So this is, in a way, pre echoes a comedian who is very famous now named Bo Burnham, who got famous doing a song in his bedroom in Massachusetts when he was still in high school. Same kind of... Never in a club and immediately more famous than a lot of comedians who'd worked clubs for years. And by a lot of comedians, I mean Me. Wayne Fetterman. So, uh... Yeah, but Bo Burnham
0: doesn't have a podcast. He doesn't. <laughs> He's a genius, that guy. That guy is so good.
1: I'm of the, uh, the younger generation, so I just wonder, for all of you, uh,
3: who are you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Welcome to the history of stand-up, where comedian Wayne Fetterman teaches us all, well, more about the history of stand-up. And I'm your fellow student, Andrew Steven. So just to put this in context, on the last episode, we were talking about the importance of television and sort of how that paved the way for mainstream stand-up to come into the homes of the everyday yes. yeah. American. Yes. Uh, American. And and so continuing in that fashion, when comedy records gained popularity, too, they gave another opportunity for you to consume comedy your home
1: and Americans were thirsty for it, thirsty for this new brand of this kind of new brand of humor because this wasn't like Joey Bishop or like these mainstream headliners that were working in Vegas or in Miami Beach at the time.
4: But Joey Bishop, you know Joey Bishop.
5: It's
6: The story of a couple in a room and there's a knock on the door, and the guy says, "Who's that?" She says, "It could be my boyfriend." He says, where's
5: your back door? She says, we don't have one. He says, where would you like one? i
0: see So these new comedians were different than that. These were sort
3: of the young, edgier comedians. And
0: comedy was changing. You can say that stand-up changed in the 60s. Here's Jed Apatow again. And on the last episode, he talked a lot about how comedians went from these big, broad characters to these more individual stand-ups. And the trend continued into the 60s.
3: So everything before like the late 50s, early 60s mm-hmm. is very different. It, you know, it was more jokes. People weren't going that deep. Right. I don't think there were comedians who were very personal, but I didn't see Mark Twain's act to know how personal he got. But for the most part, <laughs> I don't think people were actually bearing their souls. When they did stand-up comedy, and you felt comedy. like
1: that has elevated comedy,
3: I think so. And I, I think that when people decided to do that, uh-huh. uh, and, I, and I'm not sure who who you would say is the first person to do it. You know, Mort Saul clearly was one of the first people to be really
7: smart and insightful. And... Well, we were in Maine on Saturday night, which is kind of depressing. And uh... this
0: is Mort Saul from his debut album, "The Future Lies Ahead," recorded at San Francisco's Hungry Eye.
7: And uh, we're supposed to work. And there were a lot of rumors that uh, Brubeck didn't want to work because it was Mozart's birthday. There was one of those folklore things going right? And he wants, right? He wants, said, well, he wants to spend it with his kids. We all have a thing, you know. And that's what he, so uh, I went into town with this other fellow in the unit who's a bachelor. We went into town. And uh, we went to see what was shaking in, in Portland, Maine at night. So, right, and it's kind of a fantasy we're living in. So we went to this cab driver, and uh, I don't want Note
0: to... Note how different his halting, loose style is compared to, say, Bob Hope from our previous episode.
7: Night- so we went to this cab driver, and we said to him, where's the action? This kind of masculine sort of... So, so he took us to this place where they fish illegally. See, I mean,
0: And so besides kicking off the comedy record boom, Saul is critical to the history of stand-up for two other reasons. One, his non-presentational style, and like Will Rogers many years earlier, he added current events and politics to his comedy. Does not say he's a stand-up on this
1: album. Calls himself, I believe, an iconoclast. But it's put out by this jazz label named Verve, and it is not the first comedy album. I just want to be very clear. I don't want anyone tweeting me. I don't want anyone going on my old MySpace account and saying bad things about me. I know it's not the first comedy album, but it is an important comedy album because it was his act. But this album sold pretty well for Verve to the point where they're like, hey, Mort, do you know anyone else who could do an album for us? So he talked to his friend Shelly Berman. Is like, you want to record an album? I was like, sure, I'll record an album. And so Shelly Berman recorded this album the very next year, and it's called Inside Shelly Berman. We're looking at it right
0: now. And guess who writes the liner notes on the back on half of it? Mort Saul. Mort Saul, yeah. Berman's album is an even bigger seller. Inside Shelly Berman, the name of the album, becomes the first gold comedy album and wins the Grammy Award for spoken word comedy. This album, along with Mort Saul's
1: album, or like kind of the start of the mainstream record comedy boom that happened in the late 50s, early 60s.
0: But this new wave of comics was expanding. It's not just Saul and Bob Newhart or Shelley Berman. There's also Lenny Bruce, who eventually became legendary for attacking religion and being arrested for using obscenities in his act. But here's Lenny just talking about his recent divorce.
4: When people say to me, how come you're divorced?
3: I always make up a lie, and say, my mother-in-law broke up my marriage. I say, well, how'd that happen? So one day my wife came home early from work and she found us in bed together. <laughs> She's an old woman, but firm. and uh, <laughs> So we used to go to a Chinese restaurant on this trip a lot, yeah? And last time, just for years, we went there together. So when I go in alone, the waiter says to me, where's mama? How come you don't be maman anymore? Such a beautiful girl a wrong red hair by Luck like Hall. Her. Here's some cookies. Bring mama home some cookies. I am divorced. So, oh, you better off. Got <laughs> a left field.
0: These new comedy albums were evolutionary. Instead of just seeing a five minute polished routine on Sullivan or The Early Tonight Show, fans for the first time could hear and feel these comedians actually working in clubs and in theaters. It was immersive, and it was powerful. But then what happens next is even more mind-blowing. I I, I just, I was an
6: accountant, and uh, worked as an accountant, and was terribly bored by it. Um, That's the voice of Bob Newhart. George Robert Newhart, legally. Uh, I never bothered to change it uh, to Bob Newhart.
0: And this is from an interview he did with David Green for Morning Edition.
6: A friend of mine in Chicago, a disc jockey, Dan Sorkin. He he, the Warner Brother record people were coming through town, and he said, uh, "I have this friend of mine. I think it's funny." And they said, "Well, put you know, have him put down some of his material on uh, on tape." So I put it down on tape and brought it downtown. and They listened to it and they said, uh, "Okay, okay, we we think we'd like to make a recording uh, contract with you." And and we'll record you at your next nightclub. And I said, "Well, see, we have a problem there because I've never played a nightclub." So they record these sketches, and then it just it just exploded. It just took off beyond anyone's, especially my expectations. And uh, it it still is, uh, according to Billboard, the twentieth best selling album of all time. I had the number one and number two album. My first album was number one, my second album was number two, and then my second album became number one, my first album became number two. So I had the number one and number two album on the Billboard charts for something like 35 weeks or something. There was a whole change in comedy that took place in in late 59 and the early 60s, and we just kind of started doing a whole different kind of comedy. Right, Abe, you got the speech. Abe, you haven't changed the speech, have you?
2: uh abe what do you change the speeches for <laughs> a, couple, a couple minor changes I'll, I'll i'll bet all right all right what are they you change you change four score and seven to to 87. <laughs> uh, i understand it the same thing well, abe that's meant to be a grabber <laughs> uh, abe uh, we test marketed that in an <laughs> And they went out of their minds about it. <laughs> well, Abe, it's sort of it's sort of like Mark Anthony saying, uh, friends, Romans, countrymen, I've got something I want to tell you.
0: <laughs> One stand-up doing this different kind of comedy was Dick Gregory. This is from his debut album, In Living Black and White.
4: But like I said, a lot of nice things happen. Not too long ago, they put my president in office, Mr. Kennedy, and I wanted to see a change in the White House. We had a Baptist and Truman gave us eight years of piano playing. I gave us eight years of golf. I want four years of bingo.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Dick Gregory was not just a comedian. He was a trailblazer. He's stand-up's version of Jackie Robinson. Eight
5: Eight years of
4: what wasn't too bad? Oh, I'm not, I'm not knocking golf or nothing like that, honey. I don't even give a damn. I just barely got the vote this time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> At the time, major nightclubs only headlined white comics until the Playboy Club in Chicago booked him in January
4: 1961. Didn't make me no difference. Who won, you know? <laughs>
5: I well, first t- all this. well see
4: you've been voting for a long time, I have. No, <laughs> well, see, back in my hometown they make us take a test to vote. Nuclear physics in Russian.
5: <laughs>
4: and if you pass the test they tell your boy you can't vote, you read Russian, you must be communist.
0: <laughs> and in less than a year. With a boost from appearances on Jack Parr's Tonight Show, Dick Gregory went from performing for $5 a night to over 10000 a week.
4: And we have a lot of racial prejudice up north, but we're so clever with it. Take my hometown, Chicago. I mean, you can't see it just, just going in there. When the Negroes in Chicago move into one large area and it look like we might control the votes, they don't say anything to us. They have a slum clearance. <laughs>
8: You do the same thing on the
4: west coast, but you call it
5: freeways. (laughs) Well,
4: anybody here from Chicago? Where do you live in Chicago? Southside. Southside, whereabouts? Northside? Lawrence, yeah. How long you been away? Seven years. You're in a hell of a surprise if you ever go back. My brother just moved in there.
5: (laughs)
0: Dick Gregory's immense success blew open the doors of opportunity and in walked a slew of great comics, including Nipsey Russell, Moms Mabley, Godfrey Cambridge, Bill Cosby, and Richard Pryor.
4: A friend of mine lives in you know,
0: near me where I live. This is Red Fox, who later gained fame as the star of Samford and Son.
4: He woke up one morning with a black eye. And he asked his wife, he said, how did this happen? She said, well, it was last night while you was sleeping, you put your arms on my leg and your hand on my leg and said, my, what a smooth finish. (laughs) (laughs) Then you reached further and said, what perfect
5: headlights.
4: (laughs) And then you reached still further and said, who left the garage door open?
5: (laughs) She said, that's how you
4: got that black eye.
0: But beginning in 1956, he released a series of more adult-themed comedy albums called Laugh of the Party. And these, quote, party albums were also part of the comedy boom. But it wasn't just Red Fox making these hidden-behind-the-counter style albums.
4: I'm gonna line a hundred men up against the wall. I bet a hundred dollars I can bang them all. I banged about 98 thought my back would break. I went around the corner, got a noise to sue.
2: Came back, banged another two
0: I'm And if you don't know who this is, singing about banging a hundred men, her name is Belle Barth. And along with women like Rusty Warren and Pearl Washington, they were part of a wave of comedians starting in 1960, releasing albums of body jokes and songs.
3: Here's the weird thing that I never talk about <laughs> this is what com- we want when it comes this to comedy. This is the history of comedy. My grandfather had a record company. Yeah. And one of the things he used to put out was this guy named Dickie Goodman. And Dickie Goodman would put out these singles, which basically was him interviewing someone. But all the answers was little snippets from songs.
7: While Gotham City sleeps, Batman's grandmother is being kidnapped by the arch criminal known as
4: the Rainbow Rain. Commissioner Gordon dials the secret number of the Batcave. Six,
5: three, four, five, seven, eight, nine. Holy smoke, Batman,
3: they got you. You know, and they were very famous, those records. Wasn't there there a Watergate one? There was a Watergate one. There was one about the energy crisis. Uh And there was one where he interviewed Jaws. Yeah, I think I have that. Mr. Jaws. Mr. Jaws. Yeah. And so they put out a bunch of those, and that fascinated me. Just this this right. weird guy making these records. Uh-huh. Was it
0: like the construction that fascinated you, or that that could be comedy, or just in general?
3: I think maybe as a little kid it was more that they were important to the family. Mm-hmm. That there was a pride in the fact that they were putting these out and they were really popular. And it's so they were so stupid and funny that it basically meant to me that there was something important about like funny, stupid stuff. It wasn't talked down. It was this is like one of the great things in our world is this guy's making these stupid <laughs> records. And I don't know, on some in some part of my brain, I must have thought that's something you do and people admire it and people are happy about it. So I think all of those were little seeds of what got me interested in comedy.
0: It's easy to see how TV influenced records, which then created this new market for live comedy.
1: In the same way that radio those radio comedians Jack Benny and Fred Allen was all created by new technologies and I think that's one of the themes of the history of stand-up is that with each new technology a new group of comedians embrace it immediate almost immediately but i do remember also that there was a lot of like the vegas comedians there's these big rooms in vegas where comedians are making thousands and thousands of tens of thousands a week a lot of those comedians didn't want to put their
0: yeah So was i'm saying is there a pushback
1: i don't think anyone's put it that said it was bad for the industry i think there was some jealousy from the older comedians that were like oh suddenly these guys were making a lot of money on the road now because they were famous and everyone wanted to go, oh, let me go see Bob Newhart or or Shelley Berman
0: or Lenny Bruce, of course. And just as a side note, this also happened with Bo Burnham, like we mentioned in the beginning of the episode. We actually talk about him a lot in a future episode, but I just wanted to share this brief clip of Bo Burnham on an episode of The Green Room with Paul Provenza.
4: I'm a big fan of Bo's and um, you kind of had a quick trajectory in a very yeah. short time, and people gave you shit for it without even having seen it. Yeah, the biggest
7: it. reason people gave me shit is uh, since I came on the internet, they said that I didn't uh, get enough criticism, I wasn't in the clubs grinding, right. uh, grinding it out. But the, the truth is, uh, for the older comics to say that, uh, I want them to read 10,000 internet comments and see if they don't feel fully
3: criticized
1: <laughs> after that. But I think they were worried that they had spent so many years coming up with their act in the vaudeville sense of it, of like, you have an act, you do your act. You make your money, yeah. you do it year after year. You make it. Whereas this
0: generation was like, I'll do it, and then it's on record, and then I'll come up with a new record oh, of stuff. Right. Well, and I've heard you say uh, that quote from the Vegas headliner, um, Alan King, where he says, I'm not going to give away my act for $1.98. Was that the sort of thought process?
1: It's a different kind of comedian.
0: And so during this time,
1: we're transitioning from the vaudeville comedians to nightclub comedians to now
0: what we call, eventually is going to be called comedy club comedians. If you've ever seen live stand-up, chances are you've been to a comedy club. And so it's weird to think that that didn't always exist. The cliche of the brick wall, the stool, and the microphone stand started with the improv. So Bud Friedman starts this room on
1: 44th Street in Manhattan and calls it the Improvisation Cafe and had no, no idea that it was going to become this comedy mecca. He wanted just a place where all these Broadway shows let out around 10.30 at night. All these tourists are there. Maybe you can get like a piano bar where people would come and Broadway singers would sing and people would sing along and like, You know, all this talent is around there. That was the idea. That was the idea.
8: A space and a place that could be for theater performers after their curtain goes down. You know, there were Sardis, and Sardis was very expensive. Those were for the stars. And then there was sort of, you know, like Downies, like a pretty low-end bar, you know? This
0: is Zoe Friedman, the daughter of Bud Friedman.
8: And I don't know how long it took for the lease to go through, but... You know, it was as spontaneous and without a plan as that.
0: And the types of talent that was going up on stage at the time, you know, you had Judy Garland and Liza Minnelli and Peter Allen accompanying them on piano.
8: And so the sort of big difference, I think, they were not trying to attract the folk singers from Greenwich Village and that sort of, you know... um, You know, hippie vibe, they really wanted the theater people because they, my mom was on Broadway and my dad loved Broadway.
0: And so a year after its opening, roughly, so in
1: 1964 is when it happens, right? Dave Astor drops in, who is a just a, a comedian, not a young comedian, but he did have an album. He was on The Ed Sullivan Show a few times.
8: Dave Astor was sort of the first person, the first stand up to perform. And he attracted a lot of other comedians, including Richard Pryor um, and Lenny Bruce and Carlin.
7: I have found the two means to attain unbounded happiness, and they are religion and booze. <laughs> because I don't mean separately, I mean drink religiously. <laughs> this is Dave Astor,
0: and just to restate it, he was the very first comedian to ever perform in a comedy club.
7: Oh, no, you're quite wrong. Alcohol is good for you. My grandfather proved it irrevocably. He did 103 years of research on hooch. Drank two quarts of booze every mature day of his life. Lived to the age of 103. I was at the cremation. That fire would not go out.
1: <laughs> the next night, he brings two other of his comedy buddies
0: along with him. well enough that he comes, he's able to come back the second
1: night. Yeah, but it's like, come in anytime time and do a set. I'd love it. He brings his friends. Pretty soon, it becomes this comedy place, and known as a comedy only, not comedy only place, because they still had singers, but mainly- It's where you
0: wanted to go in New York to see comedy. To see young comedians,
1: and also, you could see them into the night. Mm -hmm. And so what happened? Rodney Dangerfield became the house MC.
3: My whole life, I don't get no respect. No respect from anyone.
1: This comedian named Robert Klein, who was a, like an actor, and he was in Second City, and he, uh, he started doing sets there, and he
7: became like the wonder kid. We were given dog tags, which was one of the highlights of my school career. This was surely one of the most frightening things because they let information leak out that it could withstand a certain amount of heat. <laughs> you know, and they, and they got up, of course, with great subtlety. Children are talking. Take these tags home. They're to be used in the event that you're burnt beyond recognition in a nuclear holocaust. And no talking during a nuclear holocaust. I want an orderly nuclear holocaust. Two lines, no talking. I'll be taking names. It's one of my greatest fears that I might get a zero during a nuclear holocaust.
1: (laughs) And then soon... Bud started booking the room, and even then, even in the sixties, wasn't paying people. I don't even know if he paid Rodney to emcee. I'm not sure, but that's how valuable stage time was. So from the improv, suddenly, the Booker from the Merv Griffin show would show up, and you get on the Merv Griffin show. You know, the Booker from Jack Parr would show up, and you get on Jack Parr. So it was, there was, New York was still the central area and the country to be discovered for doing comedy.
0: And so Bud became another one of these comedy gatekeepers.
1: And it's really tough because you have to say no 10 times for every yes. Excuse me, maybe 30 times for every yes. So a lot of the young comedians are like, I'm as funny as... This guy.
0: There's a story of what? Lily Tomlin, mm-hmm. who Tomlin. wanted to make such a uh, first impression on, on Bud to, yeah. in order to get booked there so then she could go on and have her career. Right. That she hired a limo to take her to the improv. Right. And had the limo circle several times <laughs> waiting for Bud to be outside so she could make her ent- grand I entrance. It. I love it. And she became one of the great uh,
1: comedians. So, anyway, so that's that was the is considered the first comedy club even though it wasn't comedy only there's actually a book about it that i'm going to show you it's called the last laugh this is the world of the stand-up comics and this is mainly even though it's about milton burl and shecky green and Shelley berman and people we've talked about woody allen lenny bruce but this is mainly about robert klein and the improv and how that kind of that scene exploded So this was going on in New York. What was going on in Los Angeles? Big nightclubs. Where the comedy store is now was a place called Ciro's, which was a big nightclub. So you would have those old vaudeville, like Sophie Tucker and Jimmy Durante, but you'd also have Martin and Lewis would be a big act there and Jack Carter. And so... When did Ciro's become the comedy store? It didn't... it It closed down, then became a number of different weird venues and then became the Comedy Store. So this wasn't directly Ceros into the Comedy Store. But I do remember, believe it or not, talking to Sammy Davis Jr. who played Ceros many times with his uncle, and I'm using uncle in quotes, as part of the Will Maston Trio, and talking about how the dressing rooms were upstairs, which I didn't know. And so, uh, and I was just at the Comedy Store couple weeks ago so i went up those stairs and there were still you could see where the mirrors were so that's that's what but it but things were about to change with new york and los angeles
0: yeah and uh the comedy store becomes the first comedy only well
1: i have seen some ads where they have had booked they did book some musicians but as a rule yes that became the first
0: so the uh the improv is the first comedy club no question But the Comedy Store is the first comedy only. I would say, I think that's accurate. I would say that's accurate. As much as stand-up was changing and growing, it was essentially still the same thing. Someone in a room was telling jokes, trying to make someone laugh. Whether that room was around a TV or a radio, or in front of a brick wall.
1: I want to show you one more thing. Yeah. Um,
0: This is George Carlin's first album. so Takeoffs and Put-Ons recorded live at the Rooster Tail in Detroit, Michigan. Right.
1: So it's this great little album. It's got all his classic stuff that got him on Ed Sullivan's show, most notably something called The Indian Sergeant. That was the bit he created to get on television. But he also did the, the disc jockey and all of that stuff. So this album comes out does all right it's on this i don't even know what this oh i guess rca so it's on this pretty good label um then he gets dropped from rca because it doesn't sell that well and then becomes more famous in the 70s they re-released the same album different
0: cover very different what do you see this different the, uh, the original <laughs> cover is <laughs> Is basically it's a bunch of uh, like passport and license photos of George Carlin making many different faces, and it has a bit of counterculture to it. But it's still pretty. He's in a suit and tie. He's in a suit and tie and a short and hair. The re-release <laughs> is uh, he's got a beard. He's got facial hair, long hair, yeah. and it's almost like a psychedelic. Um, that might be too strong of a word, but it's it's definitely has. The counterculture uh, deeply ingrained in it. So that's also something that's about to happen.
1: That in the 60s, obviously, we all know about the music and the... and Same liner notes, though. Same. <laughs> incredible. I just think it's interesting that it was like, that's how much his persona changed. That they're like, we don't even connect with this yeah. guy in a suit and tie and short hair. Comedy.
7: Another big tune. This one's been on the charts for two and a half years. It's just starting to make the big move this week. Last week it was number 215. This week, zooming up to the big number 212 spot, a folk protest song by Danny and the demonstrators. Don't want no war. Don't want no war. Don't want no war.
4: Don't want no war. Don't want no, Don't want no job, neither.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the History of Stand-Up. Be sure to tune in next week to hear about this.
1: There's never been anything as dramatic before or since. Freddie Prinz goes on The Tonight Show. A young comedian, 19 years old. Just think about that, 19. Yeah. Goes on The Tonight Show, Carson. We've got a great young comedian. It kills, whatever the word for it, the thing does great, great, great. Now, Usually when you did The Tonight Show, you did your set, Said thank you. Maybe Carson would give you an okay sign, but if you were great, he would bring you over to the couch as sort of like his endorsement as the kingmaker. So he brings over Freddie Prince. right stunned. Sits him down. He's like that. That was unbelievable. That was uh, one of the best things I've ever seen. We'll be right back. Comes back. There's he's still gushing over Freddie Prince.
5: Oh.
4: Firstly, to have somebody come out here who's, who's unknown and stand up in front of an audience and absolutely wipe them out the first appearance of coast to coast that's great
0: and if you're itching for more history of stand-up well then i have two things to tell you first you know last week on the podcast we talked a lot about how comedians went from baggy pants comedians or characters into portraying themselves on stage and we realize that doing a six episode series there's a lot of stuff that we didn't quite get to cover so if you the listener wanted to do a deep dive on your own we wanted to suggest some interesting stories and people sort of in the same scene
1: of course pre vaudeville we have mark twain and artemis ward and then in the vaudeville era we have charlie case who Interesting guy who did song parodies and then started doing monologues, ended up killing himself. And then, of course, the great Will Rogers and Burt Williams, the incredible singer and comedian, are all excellent examples of early comedy that were starting to morph into what we know as Frank Faye-era stand-up.
0: One of the ideas we have for the future is to do some deep dives into interesting characters in the comedy and stand-up world, and perhaps one day we'll do an entire episode on some of these people. 100%. And the second thing is we're doing a live special podcast taping. So if you live in the Los Angeles, Southern California area, on November 18th, we're doing a special live version of the podcast at Dynasty Typewriter at the Hayworth. So for more information, you can check out thehistoryofstandup.com. We're also going to post about it on social media. And you can get tickets starting now. Hope to see you there. The History of Stand-Up is hosted, written, and produced by Wayne Fetterman and me, Andrew Steven. The show is also produced by Jeff Umbro and Chris Boniello of the Podglomerate. You can find more of their podcasts at thepodglomerate.com. Special thanks again to Judd Apatow. Seriously, check out his book, Sick in the Head, if you're a stand-up and comedy fan. It's a must-read. Also, huge thanks to Zoe Friedman and Morning Edition. Special thanks to the Abraham Comedy Archive. They helped us pull a bunch of the clips you heard in the episode. Some of the music in this episode is by Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more about this show, episodes, and extras at thehistoryofstandup.com, at histofstandup on Twitter, or on CastBox, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this show, please tell a friend and leave a review. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening.